You're listening to Christianity 101, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Okay, last week we looked at the claims of the early church that Jesus was Lord. We saw that this was a central idea in everything that they believed and preached and did. We saw that history bears the record of a rapidly growing church, and we saw that the Old Testament prophesied the coming of a unique and divine Messiah. But we didn't spend a lot of time discussing what that God-man would actually do or how that would affect us. Keeping the four Ds in mind of the structure of these classes, the drama and doctrine, doxology and discipleship, we should notice that last week had an emphasis on the drama. We heard a lot of what happened, um, but now it's time to consider the doctrine or the teaching that comes from Scripture about the resurrected Jesus Christ and the real meaning and value that it has for us today. So we are calling these the doctrines of Christ. A brief overview of what we're going to look at today, um, a little bit different than what I said last week, uh, Christ as the Word, it's the first part, Christ as prophet, Christ as priest, and Christ as king. I didn't have time actually to get too much to do with the incarnation. It's just, there's too much. Um, the first thing we need to understand about Christ is that all of his works are mediatorial in nature. So at the fundamental root, he's mediating. And he accomplishes his Father's will towards us. So we see right from the beginning, John calls Jesus the Word. And the Word is that agent by which all things were created and which all things are upheld. It's from John 1.3 and Acts 17.28. When we use our words, when we use our words, we're expressing what's inside of us. We think and process and consider all kinds of things, but until we actually speak, those are hidden, and nobody else can know what is inside of our minds. Um, And even when we use our words, often our expression is jumbled or lacking clarity. But not so with God. For when God speaks, His self-expression is perfect. When God employs His speech... Beauty and logic and order come into existence. The powerful display of expression is worked and brought about by His divine Word, also known to us as the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And as Scripture describes to us the account of creation, it's easy to miss that there's a mediation going on. Christ's mediation has to be central. Where there is mediation, this applies an accommodation. God is condescending to our level. Let's take a moment to consider the accommodation for us that God makes in creation. And what we mean when we speak of this is that for us to exist, to have, to take part or enjoy in anything, God had to, for our sakes, express himself all the goodness and love and purity and justice and mercy and every other attribute of God that Andrew told us about a few weeks ago, 
For us to have any part in them, God had to first make a creation. Now, this sounds basic and simple, but trust me, we're going somewhere with this. And so God created not with hands, not like we would carve a sculpture or form a sculpture with our hands, because that's not really creation. That is just a manipulation of what's already created. No, God creates with his word by speaking, and he creates the universe and calls it good. His first work has no deficiency within it. And then he creates man and puts him in the garden. Here we see the accommodation of God for man. He has prepared everything graciously before us. Everything is taken care of. Then man is created out of the dust of the earth. And scripture says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And he is and so we see that, that God is doing all this for somebody that he forms out of the dust. Um, and then he makes him in the very image of God. What an honor. Um, and man is given every tree that was pleasant to the sight, so the world was beautiful, and it was fulfilling. Um, he gave them everything for eating, except the one tree. And so man is formed out of the dirt in the first pages of Scripture, But God places on him the highest honor of being the image and bearer and steward, the image bearer and steward of creation. Not only that, every need is met in abundance, over and above. Just grace everywhere. And through this gracious, accommodating, mediatorial work of the Word, it's all through the Word, there is sort of like a conversation beginning Um, in Scripture. God is speaking through His Word, and man responds. Man's response, what a response it is. After seeing and experiencing everything that had been done for him, man's response was disobedience. And this conversation is what we need to see. So what I'm setting up is, this is a quote, God in total otherness and sovereignty And after Adam's sin, unapproachable and inaccessible. So we have God over here, and then there's man. We see him in the first pages of Scripture as the fragile creature found in his sin and frailty. God in otherness, totally sovereign and unapproachable, and man fragile in sin and frailty. And this puts everybody in their rightful place to understand God's work through Christ in mediation. The situation certainly appears hopeless. We cannot think to ascend to God like the people of Babel, but rather we must hope that he descends to us. In this we see that all mediation between God and man must be initiated by God. We can't initiate it. It relies wholly on God and his actions towards us. God the Father has spoken creation into existence, given us breath with His Spirit, all mediated, and we have rejected His Word by not stewarding creation and separating ourselves from His Spirit, condemning ourselves to death. So then, by rejecting the first Word of God to us, creation, we are in need of another Word 
from God or more word from God. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in their famous conversation. Um, does anybody get John? Or could someone have a Bible out? <laughs> John three thirteen eighteen. 18. Um, anybody want to read that one? Dan, thanks. Uh, 13 to 18. No man can send up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he had only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Perfect. Thank you. So in verse 13, we see Jesus affirming that the only way we can know or receive revelation is that if someone from heaven comes down and tells us. In the same breath, he is claiming that that's him. Um, And then in verse 14, Jesus says, how our reconciliation is to be accomplished. It's by him being lifted up on a pole. And in verse 15, we are presented with the hope of eternal life, reconciliation with God through faith in God's word sent to us. So in us trusting and and believing in that, um, in Christ being sacrificed for us, that is how we... Receive the hope of eternal life. And verse 16 tells us of why God even sends the word to us in the first place. Because of his love. God's love flows out to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally in verses 17 and 18, that the world stands already condemned and perishing, being separated from God. So it's not like Jesus needed to communicate that to us, we already knew. Um, But also, Jesus' objective in coming to us in the flesh is to give life. His mediatorial works in creation were a divine accommodation to facilitate, provide, and preserve our life. Everything was done for us. Our Our rejection of it plunged us into death, but his mediation is not abandoned, it is continued. And in, in a way, it is revved up. Um, he becomes the incarnate divine son. In Jesus, <clears throat> we see mediation fulfilled. So he just keeps mediating for us until the mediation is complete. And then, so now we will look at how Jesus um, mediates our reconciliation with God. Um, so we got a couple... Verses coming up. Does somebody want to grab Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 22? And then someone else can read Acts 3, 22 to 26. You'll do Acts. Do we have a Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy? <laughs> Perfect. 18, 18 to 22. It's just in a few minutes, though. 
Hebrews 2.17 tells us, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation, reconciliation for the sins of the people. Behooved, meaning a duty or responsibility for someone to do something. Jesus, being the only mediator between God and man, was given by the Father the responsibility of mercy and reconciliation. Many versions of that text actually have just translated had to. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had to come as a man and appropriately mediate our reconciliation. The beauty of this is that logically our reconciliation isn't even necessary. God could exercise his judgment on us and just be done with it. But As we have seen, God's love continues to flow out to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. When when he walked with the disciples, he talked about how he must go to Jerusalem, how he must be put on trial, how he must be delivered up to the Gentiles and be crucified. Could it have been any other man? Um, No, we are all fallen in Adam, says Romans 3.23. Being fallen from our original state, we lack any ability to please God. So, it really couldn't have been anybody else. Some would argue, um, like the Jehovah Witnesses, that it was an angel that reconciled us to God. Um, But the mediator could not have been an angel because being created, no created being, sorry, could assume the glory and preeminence due the one true mediator. So, it is the greatest position of honor, and that wouldn't be given, and it wasn't possible to be completed by a created being. The mediator is the very word of God and the true self-expression of God, so it could not have been somebody with a creaturely nature. It must have been divine. So, uh, a quote from Dr. Paul Wells to summarize um, the need of it to be Christ. Um, No matter how much death we have brought upon ourselves, yet God has created life, uh, created us for life. Thus, He is moved by pure and freely given love of us to receive us into His grace, therefore by His love. God the Father goes before and anticipates our reconciliation in Christ. Indeed, because He first loved us. 1 John 4.19 So it's always God's love that is pursuing us and mediating and bringing us back to the Father. Now, for the rest of our time, we'll be looking at how this role is actually performed by the Messiah, and mainly the three distinct offices of prophet, priest, and king. All of the scriptures serve to show us what is required for reconciliation between God and man by mediation. So it's it's all over scripture, and they foretold of one true mediator. So firstly, the prophetic office instituted or revealed to us in Deuteronomy 18.18. This is the words of the Lord speaking to Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not do my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. If the prophet presumes to speak a word in my name, 
which I have not commanded him to speak, who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Thank you. So this is the announcement of what the prophet of God will look like. It's somebody who says the word of God, claims to speak for God, and then the thing that he says actually occurs. Um, So not a false prophet. And we see that uh, over and over again, Jesus prophesying his death and resurrection, um, we see that he was vindicated. Um, And this is kind of what Acts 3, 22-26 says to us. 22 Yep. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquity. So again, we know that this is Jesus the prophet. Um, So his prophetic office contained two types of work. One, clarifying, and two, fulfilling. As we have seen earlier about the divine word, the word is to be understood as a true representation of God towards man. The prophetic office is how God communicates about himself to us. It is him condescending to us. All prophetic work starts in God and is a movement manward. And because we're so ignorant of God, having exchanged the truth of God for a lie, The prophet is our way into the kingdom. It's our way back to God. Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It's the only way back to God. We cannot worship God in thankfulness without first being told about his goodness. Firstly, God spoke through his word in creation and then continued speaking by the prophets of Israel and finally and fully in Hebrews 1, it says, in his son. Why was representation of God necessary? Why was further representation of God necessary after creation? Wasn't God um, sufficient in his original word to us? No, we needed clarification of God's word because Adam's sin. And that obscured the image of God. And because of sin, we look and perceive the word as though looking through a glass dimly. So Jesus comes, as himself claimed, as a light to the whole world, shedding light as the image of the Father himself by clarifying all the previous communication to us. And in this pursuit, the Father is persistently sending his word to us we can see just how deep and rich his love is towards us. The second work of this office is one of fulfillment. 
Hebrews 7:19 For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God, which we can understand as the law being God's earlier work of prophecy towards man, and it was revealing God, but because of our fallenness, <clears throat> it could only show us our increasing rebellion and the necessary building wrath that was due us. But through Christ and his fulfillment of the law and his faithful expression of God's love in the gospel, we can now know the Father as he truly is and be brought back nigh to God. As it continues, Hebrews 7, <coughs> in verse 22, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And in John 14, when Philip says, Show us the Father, and it suffices us, Jesus responds to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. So Christ, it can be said that he truly exposits the Father. And this is confirmed again by the resurrection of the Lord, as he, after when he taught the disciples, the resurrected Lord, in Luke 24, 44. These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened it, their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. When we understand the Scriptures, it is sufficient to know God. And what the, the danger is of not seeing Christ as the light of Scripture and a faithful exposition of God, will be in danger of once again exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We see the error of continuing revelation in the Church of Rome, where the sufficiency of Scripture is not adhered to, and their tradition and magisterium claim to speak for God <clears throat> in a new way. We can see it also in a less formal way in some Pentecostal and charismatic movements. In the summary of prophetic work of Christ, firstly, it is that Jesus is like the prophets and that he speaks truth and life to us, but unlike the others, he is the truth and the life. And secondly, as God's word has been made flesh, we should see Christ as the fulfillment of God's word, and that he is a sufficient revelation of God unto our reconciliation with him. To seek anything else is actually a rejection of the word, <coughs> which of course is the danger. So that is the prophetic role. Next is our priestly role, which is uh, our second role, the representation of man towards God. Its primary works are substitution and satisfaction. The primary substitution of Christ is performed in the Incarnation, that is, God being made in flesh. He needed to be a proper substitution for man, a, a complete substitution for man. And so, why again does man need a substitution? Because the wrath of God do us. Because we are insufficiently righteous. We're alienated from God to the point of being hostile towards God. Just as all men are represented in Adam, and he and his posterity fell from fellowship with God and access to the tree of life, we are condemned to die. <coughs> so God, in time, 
when he was instituting Israel as a nation, gave them a priesthood. These priests had the task of mediating for the people towards God. They would make sacrifices to atone for or expiate like a payment for sins. It was understood that sins had a real cost. They were an offense to the very law of God. God's economy, or God's law, has been summarized by this statement, an eye for an eye. The very law of God is just and fair. It demands perfect and exact balance. Like the scales of justice represent to us, all things being the way God intended them to be, the righteous being, de- being deserving of blessing and the wicked being deserving of punishment. Finding ourselves in Adam is the worst thing that can happen to us. And so, the Son, Christ Jesus, is sent of the Father to be incarnate and becomes a new federal head or representative head for us. As the priestly Christ, Hebrews 2.10, it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Meaning, to be a full and true substitution, he had to endure all things like us, and this made him suitable for that substitution. Not only that, but uh, as a comfort, he identifies with us as our brother, so that we are comforted in knowing that God has experienced all that we experience. Hebrews 2, 18 says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. We have another couple of verses coming up. Romans 8.14 and Romans 8.38. You got 8.14? 4, 8, 8.38. That's a good one. Carolyn? Perfect. <clears throat> 8.14. Not yet. I said the worst thing that can happen to us is to be found in Adam. The reverse is also true. The best thing that can happen to us is to be found in Christ, meaning to have Christ as your representative. And to have Christ as your representative is to have union with Him. To have union with Him is to be adopted by the Father. Hebrews 2.11 For both He that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, forasmuch then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's what Christ does for us, delivers us. Romans 8.14 for as many are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Sorry, all the way to 17. <laughs> For you have not received the spirit of bondage and men of fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with them, that we may also be glorified with them. Right. The union with Christ is what affords us our adoption by the Father. 
It is his spirit that testifies to this union. Even during present sufferings, the believer has his hope because if God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemns us? But Christ has died, yea, rather, he has risen again. Paul declaring that there's nothing that can condemn us or lay a charge against us because we're united with Christ and there's no charge against him. So Romans 8, 38 to, sorry, 38, 39. Oh, Karen. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is what our union with Christ affords us. <clears throat> but how? <clears throat> how do we become uni- unified and, and receive all those blessings? The answer is uh, partly in the second work of the priestly office, his satisfaction. So as Christ does his priestly work of substitution, all of the necessary components must be sufficiently satisfied to the exact demands of the law. He has to fulfill all the law. Historically speaking, we have talked about two categories of Christ's obedience, his passive and active obedience. Passive obedience was his paying the penalty for sin, so his suffering, and his active obedience was his fulfilling the precepts of the law. John Murray, in Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, words it this way, Christ, as the vicar of his people, came under the curse and condemnation due to sin, and he also fulfilled the law of God in all its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both penal and preceptive requirements of God's law. So there is no greater man that could represent us, no more obedient. Christ is perfect humanity. He was sufficiently righteous and with unmatched courage endured the suffering of the cross, willingly to purchase our communion with God, always mediating. Still hanging from the cross, he had the confidence to declare, It is finished. <coughs> Sorry. He was assured that he, he would be received by the Father. And because he was abandoned on the cross, his people never will be. His resurrection is the presentation of Jesus as satisfactory, a substitution for the sins of the whole world. And finally, his kingly office. This office, in this office, he acts on our behalf in two ways to rescue us and to provide us with security. The book of Matthew ends with the words of Jesus commissioning his church. Chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 18 to 20. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So Jesus' first command now with endued with all power and authority, is to go and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of God. In other words, the mission of this king is the conversion 
of his adversaries to bring people under the rule of his kingdom. But what is his kingdom? Firstly, his kingdom is to be understood as spiritual. It's not one of present external government. And Romans 14.17 says that the kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And so God rules our hearts and our minds when we apprehend the benefits of his prophetic and priestly roles by faith. What are the benefits of the kingdom? Well, we saw some of them when we talked about our union with Christ. The benefits are salvation from sin and punishment and adoption as sons, being able to call God father and brother and friend. And eventually, these benefits even will include co-rulership with God in heaven. This is what he commands towards his adversaries, sinners. Even though we were the ones who in Adam sinned and made God our enemy, he is in pursuit of our welfare and salvation. We see in the first chapter of Luke, verse 70 to 75, that this was his plan all along. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. This is God's kingdom. The great danger that remains is that if the word is preached unto you and the sacrifice has been made, you still have no union or part with Christ unless Jesus is your Lord. Thankfully, it is Christ's kingly office that delegates that these other offices minister to you. He is conquering and overcoming your hostility. A quote from the London Baptist Confession of Faith, We need his kingly office to convince subdue, draw, and deliver us to His heavenly kingdom. And from Psalm 110.3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. God has the power. Um, The kingly office also has the responsibility of the security of its subjects. Once in the kingdom, God promises and Jesus works to keep us secure and safe. So Christ employs his authority to declare the priestly office as binding. So the priestly office continues to work for us because he is an advocate in the heavens and he is our surety and intercessor. He continues in the offensive against our enemies. Psalm 110.1 The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And Jesus' words to Peter in uh, said Matthew eighteen, Matthew sixteen eighteen, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, <clears throat> and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is offensively conquering and ensuring the eternal security and safety of his church. The comfort that is afforded to the believer with Christ as our King is not to be overlooked but will be our hope in difficulty. Calvin sums it up way better than I could in Institutes, Book 2, Chapter 15, 4. 
so that we can patiently live at present under the toil, hunger, cold, contempt, disgrace, and other annoyances, contented with this, that our King will never abandon us, but will supply our necessities until our warfare is ended and we are called to triumph, such being the nature of His kingdom, that He communicates to us whatever He receives of His Father. Since then, He arms and equips us by his power, adorns us with splendor and magnificence, enriches us with wealth, we here find most abundant cause of glorying, and also are inspired with boldness, so that we can contend intrepidly with the devil, sin, and death. So, a few closing remarks. Hopefully this morning we saw the great importance of the mediation between God and man accomplished by the Word noticing especially the unifying nature of this position, bringing all things together. Everything is done with an aim towards reconciliation. Also, there is a sense in which our union with Christ implicates us in, the divine, in His divine workings today. As Christ holds these offices perfectly, we are invited to participate with Him. We are invited to be prophets as we speak the truth of God to our neighbors other believers, and our families. When we teach our children the Scriptures, we are being God's prophets. When we pray for others, and when we prefer them above ourselves, sacrificing for them, we are joining in Christ with His office as priest. And when we attend worship service and participate in the praise of God, we are being priests with Christ. And with, his, and with Christ in His kingly office, we join Him in the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that is Christ, our Word, our Mediator, and that is all I have for this morning. I don't know if next week what's going on. (laughs) We might get into the Incarnation, or we might save that for down the road. Hopefully down the road. I need a break. (laughs) All right. Thank you. We'll see you in church.